0: West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms Podcast with Brian, Mike, and James.
1: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms Podcast. Our first one of 2018. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my friends Mike and Brian. Guys, how are you doing? I missed you guys. Missed you too, man.
2: Yeah, why, why didn't you guys come here for Christmas? I mean, it was it's a beautiful, balmy... We, Negative-something-awful-degree weather, I Christmas was
1: great. Well, we, we started to. Then we hit Indiana, and we just hit a wall of ice. That's about the truth. You know, thought it was the third ice age.
2: Well, the Pleistocene has come again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: you know, for a week. Then, then we thought, you know well, no, no, we'll head west and we'll visit Brian. And then we hit Colorado. We hit another wall of ice called the Rockies. <laughs> and then that's when we realized, that's why all the tornadoes happen in this up-and-down alley, is because they're trapped
0: right they don't have anywhere else to go
1: exactly so pinball but as I said it, this is the first episode of the new year and uh, already been having a lot of fun geek wise so I guess we'll just kick right into geek out I'll start it off this time if that's all right with you guys go right ahead fine by me cool first thing we get out of the way is uh, once again I am still geeking out to the wonderful book before the mast that my wife bought me life and death aboard the Mary Rose. And I threatened to do this before, and I'm going to do it now, is that I'm going to break out a Mary Rose fact. (laughs) So, uh, when you think about an English warship, which the Mary Rose was, you think that she's primarily going to be crewed by, well, Englishmen. Not so the case, uh, because King Henry's campaigns against the French were full of such complex background of political alliances and old hostilities and such... The English Navy at the time of the Mary Rose, the early 16th century, was a lot of, a lot of English, but it was also chock full of Normans, Bretons, Irishmen, Italians, Dutchmen, Greek, and uh, Genoese. And uh, as far as the Mary Rose herself, there was even reference of a Flemish gentleman having survived the sinking. Flemish, you say? Flemish. In fact, there's even some uh, records to indicate that the pilot of the Mary Rose, at the time of her sinking, may himself been French. You know, that
2: sounds like there's just a lot of jokes just waiting to, be, uh, waiting to happen there with a French pilot with an English warship about ready to set sail to, to go to war with France.
1: Yeah, but... The jokes just write themselves. They do. But from what I've read... A lot of ships in the English Navy, when they were, had their problems with France, had French pilots because these were the guys who knew the best ways in and around the French coast. That makes too much sense. And even though uh, fighting against their country, money is a great equalizer.
2: You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, that money aspect. It doesn't surprise me at all that Italians were on board. In the studies that I've been doing through the Italian Renaissance fencing manuals, there have been a lot of references to the socio-political and also the military structure of Italy during the times. And uh, Italy was quite renowned for its mercenaries during Oh uh, yeah, during the 16th and 17th century, well, more 16th. So, yeah,
1: that, that doesn't come as much surprise. So there's your Mary Rose fact for this episode. And trust me, many, many more are on the way. Excellent. <laughs> what else have I been kicking out to uh, recently? Still reading A Theft of Swords. It's turned out longer than I thought it was going to be. I feel like I'm getting close to what I thought was going to be the climax of the primary storyline. But the Kindle is telling me that I've still got like 60% of the book left. Huh? So I'm like, I really feel like I'm being taken around here, but we'll see. But, you know, I'm looking forward to finishing this one hopefully soon because I have another book. And this one is by an author who is actually a friend of mine. There's a gentleman whom I know through the SCA from when I lived uh, down in San Antonio, named Robert Farrell. And he wrote a book called Goblinopolis, The Toll Chronicles. And I'd like to read to you the description of the book. On a planet where magic and technology are inextricably intertwined, Toll, a gruff inner-city goblin cop, finds himself the unlikely role of savior when the world's access to The Slice, a reservoir of magical energy, is threatened by a fiendish criminal plot. And life is only getting more complicated for Toll, as the Chosen One, when his younger brother becomes king by defeating all comers in a network hacking contest, only to then staff his cabinet with a legendary and nefarious hacker, Boogla. And not helping Toll in the least are the intrepid reporter, Selpla, and her crew as they battle their way to the uber story of the century through magical superstorms, vicious wildlife, and a robot that grafts random animal parts onto wandering pets.
2: I think I like that robot.
1: (laughs) In Goblinopolis, Robert G. Farrell has crafted an entirely new comedic world of magic, mayhem, and technocracy that devoted readers of Terry Pratchett's Discworld will love and new fantasy readers will devour and be left wanting more. So I've known about this book for a while, and I found that it was less than $5 on the Amazon bookstore. So I ordered the Kindle copy, and I'm looking forward to reading it soon.
2: Excellent. Sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. Having known the author and his writing style i'm really looking forward to sinking my teeth into this one so what else has been going on with me you know besides a bunch of reading and occasionally still playing destiny 2 uh not a lot this has been such a busy time of year
2: oh what what, whatever with
1: oh you know the not a whole lot just sitting around at home you know doing light housework laundry you know the things like that
2: you know that uh that is probably the killer stuff of geeky interests or really any adult interest is uh, real life the laundry is the sisyphean <laughs> challenge of anybody who has any
1: interests yeah you find that you've spent you know most of your day and all all of your supposed free time doing it you think you've got it done you think you've got it dried folded hung only to discover that the mound has only gotten bigger
2: Washing it only makes it angrier. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and there's a big bottle of Tide that constantly has to be rolled up that hill.
2: Oh, don't worry. Our youngsters are eating it.
1: <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yes. Uh, I do feel like there was something else that I have, I have been thinking about. Oh, Mike, there was one thing. Oh? One of my wonderful Christmas gifts from my wife. I am now the proud owner of a copy of The Flower of Battle.
2: Ooh. Yes. Yeah. I sent her a
1: link to that. You are a good friend. I do my best. And the only issue is that it comes very soon after I got before the mast, and I've just I've got these two books in front of me, and I'm like, but I've known people who can read like four or five books at a time. I'm not one of those people. you know, I have a hard time with two books at a time because of how much I give my focus and attention. Reading multiple books at a time is a blessing and a curse. It is. And so I'm in the middle. Well, not the middle. I am still feel like I'm barely breaking into Before the Mast. And I've told you that it's 498 pages long. That doesn't sound that much. But you have to realize the book is probably 14 by 11 inches. That's, uh, that's a tome. That's a big book. That's a very big book. I could probably fight off a guy with a baseball bat with this book.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, there is such a thing as a book club.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done But true there are a lot of pictures Charts, diagrams, and everything else in life. But, You know it's got pretty pictures right in the middle I'm like ooh there's a picture I haven't seen yet Okay focus James focus um, So I'm going to get to the Flower of Battle soon I am Because I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you And uh, trying out Some of the uh, the plates And the instructions in it with my longsword But it's just uh, I, I, I want to give each book their due Absolutely and do my best not to rush through one because i'm excited about the next
2: i'm actually a little bit envious that you're going to be trying it out because here's one of the things is you know as i'm still working through an injury by the time i get back into fencing i might be one of the best read but also most poorly studied fencers because to really understand and appreciate these books i mean studying them is a kinetic act Mm -hmm. Uh, that it's not just something you read. They're meant to be practiced, and they're meant to be worked through, and they're meant to be exercised. So uh, you're getting a whole different dimension that I'm going to be able to get.
1: But, you know, hopefully there will be some people around you and your local fighting group who will have looked through some of these as well. And first you can start off by talking theoretically about the educational and philosophical works of the book, and then work your way up to the mechanical and the practical. I think I know the guy. Well, At least you've got someone in mind. So uh, that's pretty much going to do it for me, Brian. What about you, mate?
0: Well, my geeking out has largely along the lines of whatever I'm binging on Netflix or streaming service du jour, and lately that's been Veronica Mars. Oh, uh, yeah, we got loaned
2: those DVDs years ago, and went through those. It was uh, my wife loved it, and I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, well,
0: uh, my wife was watching it. Uh, Back when we were in school, and you know, I was mostly doing my homework, and there were a couple scenes like, oh, hey, that looks pretty good, but I didn't have the, the time and the attention to pay attention to it. And it's kind of a show you have to pay attention to, or you miss everything. And uh, I kind of regret that I didn't watch it with her, but I've, I've been watching it lately, and I've just been, I think I started the day I came back from Wichita on the first or the second, and I'm halfway through season three already. So and I've it's it's delightful. The the writing is is so true feeling and the characters are so layered and complex and they're they're real people. A lot of times in a TV show you'll have somebody who's got three traits and that's kind of all that defines them. But I find that these characters are they're self contradictory in ways that feel real and they don't feel like they have to, you know, hide Veronica Mars's Warts, You know, she gets to be a real person and have faults and make mistakes without that making her less of an interesting and admirable character. I'm really, really enjoying it.
1: That was one show I never – I knew about it, but it just never showed up on my watch list.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't – the uh, service right now that's got it is uh, Go90, which I guess is Sprint's attempt to be Netflix. But okay. I don't know exactly what they're doing because it's all free and there's no advertising. So
1: Interesting. <laughs>
0: So I can't get it on my smart TV or my app, my uh, Amazon Fire, but, you know, I can watch it on the computer for free.
2: Yeah, what they're going to do is they're going to get you hooked, and th- then we're going to find out how they're making their money.
0: Yeah, well, see, that's the advantage to binging it like this. I'm going to watch all of that before they figure out, oh, we need to start charging you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good idea.
0: It's also got Babylon 5 on there, though. Yes. Ooh. Okay,
1: now there's my reason for checking it out. Yeah, that's uh, Go90 is the streaming service. Cool.
0: I wish I could watch it on my actual TV instead of on my computer, but— you know, you got to do what you got to do to get your Babylon Five.
2: Yeah, absolutely, check out a Chromecast. I actually got one of those for Christmas. And uh, have you ever guys been sitting at the I don't know in your living room, and somebody says, "Oh, there was this most hilarious thing on YouTube," and everybody plays the game of pass the phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chromecast allows you to play pass the phone with a swipe. And what you do is you plug this device into an HDMI port into your smart TV. And all you have to do is, so long as you're all signed into the same Wi-Fi network, is you can click an icon that says screencast and share to screen. And so what's on your phone comes up on your TV.
0: You know, I think my TV – I had to get a, a new television because my old one that was 12 years old broke finally. And I think it's actually got a feature like that built in. But I haven't figured out how to use it yet.
1: My Xbox does on the the YouTube app. Is that since I've synced the two, apparently, I've got to pull up the YouTube app on Xbox. But if I find the video on my phone, I can just make a motion and supposedly it will start playing on the Xbox.
0: I think the Chromecast takes pretty much any streaming service and just sends it to the television
2: also make a motion and it'll sink was also one of the features on the Mary Rose wasn't it
1: <laughs> yes that is one of the theories about why it's sunk somebody made a motion <laughs> historians are still completely there, there are many connotations in the in the in the British language about what make a motion means
0: well you, you have to be very careful about making motions when your primary form of communication is semaphore
1: exactly <laughs> well spotted Brian I think you've solved it
0: Yes. Uh, Beyond Veronica Mars, I reinstalled Mist, and oh. I am bound and determined I'm going to get through that game. Oh, wow. I've, man, I've never solved it. I solved the second one, uh, Riven, but I've never gotten through Mist. Both
1: beautiful games. Yeah. They don't make them like that anymore.
0: I... Actually, they do. There's one oh. for the uh, Oculus Rift called Obduction, which is by the same, the same team that made the original Myst series.
2: Okay. No, I'm kidding.
0: A lot of that, I haven't gotten through quite through that one either. It seems a lot easier than some of the older ones, though. Mm-hmm.
1: So, interesting fact. I When those games came out, you know, Mist and Riven, I knew about them, but I never had any desire to play them. I came to find out that a few years after they came out, my dad, of all people, downloaded them and played each one, beat each one.
0: That seems like the kind of thing that your dad would enjoy,
1: yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he's methodical, and uh, he's very, very detail-oriented, and games like that appeal to him. He's never been a huge computer gamer ever in any sense, but Myst and Riven, those appeal to him.
2: Well, it's because they give a very different approach to games than what was present at the time. I mean, it was designed around an exploration and designed around an immersive experience that... It wasn't part of the normal repertoire at the time. Until we had a series of exploration missed clones, I mean, what was popular at the time? There was Doom and there was Duke Nukem and there were a lot of first person shooters and there were puzzle strategy solvers like
1: uh, that was also the time that like flight sims were big. Oh yeah. And Civilization was on like its what, third incarnation, second incarnation?
0: Uh, it would have been probably the second civilization okay. around that time.
2: So, I mean, saying he wasn't a big computer gamer, but he picked it up, is <clears throat> not really terribly surprising given how different it was to what was also around at the time. Yeah. So what about you,
0: Mike? What have you been geeking out to?
2: Um, well, speaking of immersive experiences, uh, I passed this weird kiosk in the mall. Actually, my wife said, you've got to go to this place. And I'm like, well, why? She's like, it's it's called Reality Zombies. Like, okay, um, (laughs) what do you do there? She's like, I don't know, but I get the (laughs) sense that this is something that you got to check out. And so I took, we actually we both went together. We took Stella, my youngest, and it is just this storefront in the mall, and you're looking down, what is a somebody's alley with some fences, some barrels that are sitting there, and there's, across the top, reality zombies. And what it is, is it's an augmented reality first-person shooter.
1: I'm in, mm. so, I'm in.
2: Yeah, I mean, it promotes itself as, you know, shoot holographic zombies, but it's more than that. I mean, it is that, but once they put on the VR headset, it is, since it's augmented reality, it is projecting bits of the computer game right there into the room. And I actually wound up talking to the proprietor of the establishment. And what's going on is that you have in this VR headset, it is taking a perpetual scan of the room. And so it's knowing where to show you the whatever character they decide to generate and put into the room, Uh, this particular incarnation it's zombies. So it's really pretty impressive in terms of its enmeshment in what you're seeing. The premise is simple. You pay them $10. They put you uh, put a headset on you, and for 10 minutes, you try to gun through as many zombies as you possibly can, trying to accumulate a high score. And so I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. I'll give this a shot. And uh, <laughs> Literally. And uh, so what they do is they put the headset on. They said, now look at your hand. And I'm looking at the handset that I have. is now a gun. And he says, put three into the bullseye to start. And so I'm looking at him like wait a minute, these things have sights. <laughs> I don't know how sights work, and so one, two, three, there we go. And it's like, oh, also, make sure you load the gun first, and I look down, and there's an ammo box. So you swipe down with your left hand, pick up the ammo from the ammo box, and uh, get it near the bottom of your handset, and that loads the gun. And as I'm gunning through zombies, I'm like, okay, these things go down a lot faster if we just do headshots. So, okay, let's line up the sights, and one, two, three, 12, 13, click. Okay, well, better reach down, grab some more ammo, slap it in. And as the more I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, is there a penalty for loading this thing early? So anytime there's a pause, reach down, grab it, reload. And after I'm done, just trying to piece through bits and pieces of this game, like, okay, the sights work, the headshots are best, conserve the ammo, have your ammo ready. And when I get to things like, well, let's see how you did. You're in the top 20.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: And it's like, I'm not even really all that good at first person shooters, but there's a certain rhythm. Part of what he was telling me is, yeah, you were you were chaining those headshots. Each time you get a headshot, there's a bonus for the next shot being a dead on accurate headshot. He's like, I'll bet you if you do it one more time you'll be in the top five, which is a drawing for one hundred dollars cash. And I'm like, this is really cool. I'm enjoying that. I paid my $10, and I had my $10 worth of fun. I'm not going to
1: let greed motivate me. Greed or... Geek pride, Competitiveness. Competitiveness, yeah.
2: Yeah, competitiveness is not a good motivator for me. But a few days later, I brought back my other daughter, uh, Cedra, my eldest, and let her have a round because, like, okay, this is too much fun. I'm going to let you have your $10 worth of fun. (laughs) And after she did that, I'm like, it's not about competitiveness. It's not about the high score. I'm going to be really bad, and I'm going to shoot $10 worth of zombies. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) that is to say that it was fun, and it was worth the replay. And I wound up in the top three. But, you know, that's not the point. (laughs) That's not the point. Um, The thing is, they're working on other renditions of this because, I mean, this thing was too neat, just conceptually. So I was talking to the proprietor, and he he showed me – He says, oh, put on this headset. Now look over here at this table. And he was showing me the next model that they were working on. Um, He's like, this is sometime down the road. And the stuff that they're working on looks really cool. They're going for another concept where you're in a lab and you're gunning down these alien experiments that have gotten loose right now, there's only one of these available, and it is in the Cambridge Side Galleria Mall in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Come by and tell them hi and even tell them that you heard about them on the Geek at Arms podcast. I get absolutely zero dollars for you telling them that, but <laughs> at least they'll know. And I have just told you how to beat my high score. I challenge you.
1: Now, have they talked to any about expanding beyond just that one mall?
2: Funny that! With... So many years going into development, they're definitely going to expand.
1: I hope so, because that sounds like so much fun.
2: Yeah, and it's low commitment because, you know, you're only spending so much time, you're only spending so much money, and you get to play with the really cool techie bits of gaming gear. I mean, alternatively... Before they open things up, I don't know how far. I don't know how you know when this is going to go nationwide. But I mean, I mean, I got some spare rooms.
1: I mean, you guys. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after I tell Joy about that, um, we might make that trip sooner than we thought. <laughs> Brian, you reminded me when you talked about Netflix. I'm going to jump in with one more geek out that I've been enjoying this past month that I somehow completely forgot about. But I have also. Speaking of Netflix originals, I finally got into watching Stranger Things.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And I've kind of been putting it off for a long time. And uh, because I'm not one for horror or even really thrillers in any shape or form. That's just not really what I enjoy. But the nostalgia factor has always been there for me. Mm. And uh, I've continually read nothing but fantastic reviews for the show talked to other people, and said, hey, so have you seen Stranger Things? And their reaction is on par with what your guys' were just now, like, oh, yeah. just can't say enough good things about it. So I was like, all right, I'll give the first episode a try. I think three days later, I was done with the first season.
2: See, I didn't even <laughs> ask you if you'd seen Stranger Things. Because I just assumed that you had.
1: <laughs> that is fair. I'm about halfway through the second season, and a lot of it really appealed to me. A big part was because I think that in the first season, it's set in like the mid-80s, and it centers around those those young kids. And that's just almost the exact same age I was during that year. Oh, so, that makes sense. Man, I, rem- I remember that stuff.
0: See,
2: it spoke to me because I, I did all of those presence.
0: things, except yeah. <laughs> for fighting the monster
2: and going to an alternate dimension.
1: Well, that you know <laughs> of.
2: Well, we also had a shaved-haired gal in our neighborhood who had telekinetic power. So that was, you know, it was kind of nostalgic for me in that respect.
1: Okay, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) You had a telekinetic girl. I fought an otherworldly horror. Uh, Yeah, North Side of Wichita was weird. (laughs) So it's been a fantastic show. I'm not quite blasting through the second season like I did the first. I'm kind of spacing it it out a little bit. It lost a little
0: bit of the, the charm and the... Compelling nature in the second season, I think
1: no, it did, but I'm still invested in these characters and mm-hmm. in the direction that they 're going, and I want to see it to completion, like you say it's lost some of that uniqueness of the first season, but I'm still enjoying every bit of it.
2: you know what what really resonated with me in that second, and this is Sears, and I was joking before, but the interaction between the sheriff and eleven just really seemed genuine in terms of mm-hmm. Dealing with somebody who's coming of age and somebody who's mm-hmm. a flawed human being having a hash out fight with their pre-teenager with telekinetic powers mm-hmm. just just seemed so real.
1: Well, I love that relationship, too, because we see, especially throughout the first season, so many examples of horrible parenting, just horrible parenting. And then we, we see the sheriff and... How he slowly builds the relationship with Eleven, you know, finds her a place. And spoilers for those who haven't seen it, but I think the only person that was left in the Western Hemisphere who hadn't was me. <laughs> so you can see from the sheriff that even when he's teaching her and even when they're fighting, there is genuine care and concern and desire for her well being to keep her safe and, and to help her, not just keep her safe but also make her happy because you look at it and you you genuinely see he wants her to be happy. And some people would say, well, he's just taking all of those thoughts and feelings that, you know, he would have had for his own daughter, who we see had died because of cancer and just placing them upon her. I thought, so what?
2: Yeah, that's, have you not seen people actually do that?
1: Exactly. So when they first introduced the sheriff in the first season, you think like, oh, he's typical 80s small town sheriff that we've been shown time and time again on TV and in movies. He's just going to get in the way. He's is going to get in the way. He's going to blah, blah, blah. I want my coffee. Leave me alone. Don't care what's going on. But then he shows himself to be canny and clever and not to use alliteration, but an incredibly capable person and has grown to be my favorite character on the show.
2: Yeah, I agree There is just something genuine in the way that he approaches Eleven. It's, I mean, it's certainly motivated by compassion and concern and and a real love to shape her, despite the fact that he's pretty misguided in the way he's doing it. Though, I mean, none of us are really equipped to raise a teenager, much less a telekinetic one. So, who. And one who has to absolutely stay out of the, the radar.
1: Yeah, completely off the grid. And true, the grid in the late 80s was completely different than the grid now, but still hard. How do you buy egos in bulk without it setting off some type of alarm? I've never found a way. Yeah, I, I mean, mean I, I don't know. Yeah, see, I bought a large box of them for my children just this last week, and as I was walking out the store, security cameras were just following me. <laughs> well, I think that will wrap it up for Geek Out. And because this is the first show of the year, it would be good for a segment of To the Future. But let me explain. It'll be a very specific to the future. Everyone around this time of year likes to begin thinking about New Year's resolutions. I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to lose weight, all sorts of things. Well, this is also an exciting time for those of us with geekier interests. New year coming up, new possibilities for new interests, getting back into old ones, or even maintaining what I'm doing right now. So I thought that maybe each of us could you uh, know in the interest of time in keeping this show about the length it needs to be we could talk about three geeky things that are coming up this year that we're really looking forward to experiencing but so who goes first and Mike you shall go first
2: okay well uh, you know the way that I generally do things a uh, little mix of new and old this year I'm gonna move forward with something that I've kind of been tinkering with for a while. I used to play a homebrew, a homebrew role-playing game, Star Wars role-playing game with the children. And it was completely homebrew with mechanics that are designed for five, six, seven-year-olds. Well, it's been a few years since we've done that, now that I have an 11 and 12-year-old. And the girls have just kind of said, when are we going to do another role-playing game? And I'm looking at my Star Wars D6, and it says on the back for ages 12 and up. And I'm thinking, (laughs) close enough. And we actually are looking at getting a couple of our adult friends together and seeing what we can do about an intergenerational role-playing game. And I was kind of concerned about this for a little bit, but after I spent some hours drawing up some characters and going through a scenario with the kids, they actually did really well in the scenario with some, I would say, adult-expected, sophisticated solutions to problems. And I think that one of the things we're going to do this year is see if we can do a short campaign see how that goes cool gonna see what we can do about getting a commitment for four to five adventures first and see how we like it and at that point we have a distinct end so anybody can bail and say okay we wrapped up the story i've had my fill i'm good
1: i like that putting it on a set number of sessions because that allows you to be able to craft your story and get an idea about okay this is going to happen on night one night two night three night four night five and uh, it gives your story a beginning a middle and end
2: yeah. And I've, I'm used to doing that sort of thing for Star Wars role-playing games, for short campaigns and, and or long scenarios, whichever way you want to you wanna look at it. So it's worked well in the past, and so I'm, you know, darn it, I'm going to do it again. And I guess another thing that I'm looking forward to this coming year, again, uh, a little bit of old mixed with something new, there's going to be a reprint of Jeffrey Forgang's, translation of MS-133, the yeah. oldest fight book in the world. So there is a, uh, it is a German facsimile in translation so that uh, you can basically see and read along with the oldest medieval manuscript on how sword and buckler fighting was done. And that's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll
0: go next. Things I'm looking forward to this year. Well, in keeping with Mike's uh, precedent. I am looking forward to starting another role-playing game. I think I mentioned last time that I am looking at Middle Earth role-playing, which was my very first experience gaming. And so I pulled out all of my ancient, ancient books, looked into getting some replacements for some that have fallen apart or I got given away over the years, and found out that Iron Crown books are now very expensive.
1: Um, So how much of a small gold mine are you sitting on?
0: Well, I took my Arner book... Arnor being the Northern Kingdom, Arnor and Gondor. I took that with me over Christmas back home, and I was looking up, you know, what would it cost me if I had to buy this again? And a good condition, a new condition with the maps, $426. No!
1: Dude! That was
0: the lowest price. And I'm like, I think that I should keep this book away from my nephews. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, wow, I could sell my… Iron Crown collection and probably live off that for a year at this point. I mean, that was just, and of course I'll grant you, Arner is a big book and it had a lot of really nice maps, but like the Palantir quest, which is fairly narrow book is going for upward of $120. Good night. I was rebuying the the Angmar source book and that was $250. Like, Oh, I think I might look for some PBS or something because that's, out of reach. Yeah.
2: And that's what they're regularly selling for.
0: Mm-hmm. Holy
2: cow. Yeah, that's if you go onto Amazon, that's what you're gonna find. See, I found one <laughs> of if I'm, if I'm if I have no idea with Middle Earth role playing game. Amazon is, is usually the place of where the top seller just kinda waits for somebody to get desperate. And you might have some luck going to ebay and playing the really, really, really patient game. Yeah. Um, but I've
0: had some bad experiences buying from eBay in terms of what you get is almost as described and it's like do i really want to go to the bother of you know disputing this because it didn't have all the maps with it mm. or do i just say okay well i knew i was taking a risk buying on eBay mm-hmm. and i've had enough bad experiences buying on eBay that i don't i just i don't go there
2: anymore unless what i want
0: is just really esoteric
2: that makes sense that's fair I, most of the books that i've gotten off of eBay again star wars d6 so they don't usually have the maps uh, because yeah. they didn't have any to begin they with. Didn't they didn't have any to begin with.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did have to be really patient. I think I mentioned at one point to James that I was looking for the Tramp Freighters book, and that was yeah. going for 70 or $80 everywhere I could find it. And I finally did get a copy for around 40 I think.
1: Oh, that's not bad. That's
0: like a 30-page
2: book. It's really small. Now, what, <laughs> I had what
1: was the condition the like?
2: It was in good condition. Okay, good. I picked one of them up for sixteen dollars and another one up for, I think like five or six. But I was waiting and I was just watching because I know that that thing can go for crazy amounts of money.
0: Mm -hmm. Other things I'm looking forward to on the uh, the movies front: The Incredibles two, finally. Yes. Normally, you know, sequels don't really do much for me, but Pixar has generally been pretty good about sequels that are at least as good as the original. Mm -hmm. I think Monsters University is the only one I've seen that really measure up that way. But uh, The Incredibles, I thought, was ripe for a sequel from the very beginning, and I've just been trying to figure out why it's taken them so long to do that.
2: Here's my hope. I hope that they were just waiting for the right script. Yeah.
1: I think they're savvy enough to realize that if we don't go forward with the right script on this, we're going to get burned. Mm-hmm.
0: But it's not like they had the dearth of scriptwriters you know, in-house at Pixar.
1: You know, it, it might have been that they had a set – that's true. That is very true. But it might have been that they had a certain number of projects they wanted to get through first.
0: And I know they were really enthusiastic about the Cars franchise. I didn't really have much interest in that one. Yeah, same. Uh, I didn't like the first one. <laughs> but they were – like John Lasseter, that was – he was going for Cars. That was his thing. It's been a long time coming, and I'm so looking forward to that movie. I'm actually also looking forward to Marvel's big saga finally being done. Every movie that they've made has been fantastic. I've loved them all, and, but I've got to admit I'm getting a little tired of it, and I kind of want to see them go in another direction that isn't all supporting the Infinity War.
1: Yeah, because you know after this one they're not going to stop.
0: Well, I think their plan that they've said is they want to kind of dial back and do a lot more character-focused instead of we have to save the world every time a lot more scripts that are more similar to Doctor Strange rather than Captain America.
1: Now, I read I don't know if it's this is for certain, but I read online that there was supposedly a greenlit Black Widow movie.
0: Oh, really? I yeah, I would want about that.
1: I would very much like to see that and it needs to happen. I think Wonder Woman <laughs> of all things showed that hey, a female-driven superhero movie can work.
2: And uh, what's Black Widow's superpower? Uh, oh, yeah, she's clever. <laughs> Speaking of clever, that leads me into the thing I'm
0: most looking forward to on television, which is the next series of Doctor Who.
1: Oh yeah!
2: Oh my gosh, I loved that Christmas episode.
0: I still I haven't seen the Christmas episode yet. I something I need to put on my uh, on my list. But other than the Christmas episode, I'm all caught up on everything else.
2: Let me. I don't. I, I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but I will tell you this. Keep in mind when you go and watch this this Christmas episode that you have the opportunity to look back on parts of your life and say, Oh, I'm really embarrassed about the time that I did that or <laughs> said that. That's
0: not like I don't spend most of my time doing that anyway.
2: <laughs> right. And now he's in front of
1: you. <laughs> I, I'm still woefully Yeah, I'm still woefully behind in Doctor Who. I still have not seen any of the Peter Capaldi.
2: Uh well, I mean you know, there's a lot of hate for Peter Capaldi. Mm-hmm. Um the first season I understand people didn't like the fact that he was a we moved from jovial and and rather free spirited doctors to somebody who was written grumpier. I think that the writers kind of got over the we're gonna make this doctor grumpy after the first Peter Capaldi season. And the second season his second season was stronger. His third season was his strongest. I really felt like they got into the groove of who Peter Capaldi's Doctor was. Add to that, that I think I would have watched the Bill and Nardole show all on its own. And (laughs) uh, yeah, I think that the third one, the third season was uh, a fantastic season for the 12th Doctor.
1: I, I did see like a clip on YouTube of a Peter Capaldi Doctor Who moment because I saw the picture of it like on the little preview and I'm like, okay, I have to watch that. And it's the one where he's sitting in Davros's portable little Dalek thing amongst all the Daleks and he I really liked him in that moment because they're all looking at him and they're like, you know, how did you get here? And he's like a psychotic, you know, super genius amongst a planet full of angry, murder-happy robots. I'm definitely having his chair. <laughs> And, and I'd hope that that was indicative of his usual manner. And before that, he was like, all the Daleks are looking at him, and he comes to the doctor, and he, he reaches down amongst all the alien controls, and he picks up a cup, a porcelain cup, takes a sip, and he's like, now the real question you're asking yourselves is, where did he get the cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. That is a wonderful moment.
2: Yeah, that's uh, I, that does not surprise me from, from – these are moments that you're picking out from Peter Capaldi's later seasons. I really enjoyed him. I enjoyed Other Doctors more, but I really mm-hmm. enjoyed it.
1: I'm looking more forward to the Peter Capaldi seasons now than I was before. Well, and
0: like every doctor you know, he regenerates, and the first few episodes, he's like, I'm not sure about this guy, and by the end, you can't imagine anybody else playing the part.
1: And I will admit, I was that exact same way with David Tennant and then Matt Smith. Fully admit, Mm -hmm. I was that way. At first, I thought, no one's going to do better than Christopher Ekersten, and I'm like, oh, who's this tall child being? And then David Tennant was just wonderful. And then up comes Matt Smith as like the most earnest doctor who I've ever seen in forever. And uh, of the three new ones I've seen so far, Matt Smith is my favorite. But I'm going to do my best to give Peter Capaldi and the person who has now come after him a fair try.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what Jodie Whittaker can do with the role.
1: Um, Mm -hmm.
2: She only got one line in the last episode because spoilers after being told for a year that Peter Capaldi was leaving the show – Peter Capaldi's leaving the show. And uh, Jodie Whittaker, of course, regenerates as the doctor. And we get a single line, and now it's up to the next season. And we're just going to have to wait to see what she does.
0: Do any of us have any idea when that's starting?
2: None. Yeah, actually, this one is going to start in the fall of 2018. So we've got a few months, and uh, then we'll see her do her thing.
0: That's too long. Yeah. I
1: know.
2: It's always a hard in each way, time. in we'll have uh, Star Trek Discovery, which I still haven't seen the first half of Star Trek Discovery, but...
1: Yeah, same. I haven't seen a single episode of that yet.
2: I think to fill the time, I'm going to be working on Star Trek five-year Mission.
1: Is that that YouTube series? <laughs> no, it's a game. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a like four-player cooperative game where you're on the Enterprise. I got it for Christmas, but I haven't had a chance to break it open and play it yet.
1: Cool. So for myself... I've got a couple of things that I'm really looking forward to in this new year. One, I am hoping that I'm planning on making more SCA events than I did last year, and even the year before. Ever since Joy became pregnant with the twins, and since we had the twins about, oh, 17 months ago, the amount of events we've been able to go to, local or otherwise, has been negligible. But now that the boys are older... And Michaela is older as well. I'm hoping to go to a tournament in February, looking at going to maybe a camping event in in May and maybe another event sometime in between. And just kind of getting myself out there more, going to more tournaments, getting some more fighting, maybe actually be able to use some of this longsword training that I have been doing and just making a presence of myself out there on the fighting field again. And just don't
2: use the sections where he teaches you how to break people's arms. They don't like that
1: in the SCA. You know, just once, <laughs> I would like to use one of the ones where you close with your opponent, your blades come together, you step past them, your sword swings down, takes your opponent's sword with it, sends it flying, and you've got him by the scruff of the neck holding your blade over his head. I want to do that just once. I don't care if I get <laughs> dog piled on by the marshals afterwards. I just want to see the look in the guy's face and everyone else's as I do it. So, yeah, more SCA events this year would be a lot more fun. And then I could go to an event, and people wouldn't, like, rush up and hug me. It's been so long. Where have you been? I'm like, I've been here. I've been coming out. I've um, been using my alternate persona. Didn't yes, you see exactly. Me? A Japanese kabuki mask dealer. <laughs> and I'm hoping that now that the all the children are able to entertain themselves, that I'll be able to get more into the craft side as well. I've got a list of, like, three woodworking projects, which I am – slowly and agonizingly trying to get through. But finding the time to do so has just been harder than ever. So hopefully those will at least get done and I can clear my plate. And I'm sure by that time that happens, I'll have even more on it. But that's okay. Uh, Besides more SCA events, Brian, you brought up Avengers Infinity War. I'd always wondered how this was going to work. You know, they've been building up to it ever since we first saw the Tesseract in... What movie did we first see that in? That like was Captain America. First Captain America movie. That's right. I mean, this is where they've been building to since Captain America, the first Avenger. And they call it like the, the culmination of their second phase or whatever. But I've always had trepidation about such a large ensemble movie. I mean, they're just throwing it all in right now. And then I saw the trailer, and it just sent a shiver right down my spine in the best possible way. That was so good. Even when you think that the trailer's fading out, it comes up on Thor, and he's like, who are you guys? And boom, there's the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm like, they just gave a post credit scene on their trailer, <laughs> and it was great. And to me, it'll be one of the highlights of the year, I think, I hope. I hope it will be a highlight of the year. It better be a highlight of the year for as much money as Disney and Marvel are putting into this thing.
0: Oh, they're really be highlight, a it'll be highlight on their balance sheet, for sure.
1: Yeah. And I'll throw these in as well. Minor things I'm looking forward to, minor movies. I could do a whole list about movies, but in February, really looking forward to Black Panther. Yeah. Um, Also really looking forward to Solo, a Star Wars story. This is one that's had a lot, not a lot, but a little bit of drama around ever since their first, they, they had a pair of guys directing it and they both got canned. And okay, that's never good when that happens. Uh, Superman. yeah, especially on a Star Wars movie. And then they bring in Ron Howard to be the replacement director. Okay, now I'm fine with it.
2: Ron Howard, I trust to do a good job. I mean, I what's he? I mean, I'm not gonna say what's he done? I mean, i I loved Willow, but what has he done lately?
1: Let's see. He's produced a lot. He's written some.
2: I liked Willow, so you know, probably one of the few people who did, but, you know, I did.
1: <laughs> no, no, I love Willow. I loved Willow, too, as one of my favorite movies as a kid. Let's see, he's produced—recently uh, he produced The Dark Tower, a TV show called Breakthrough, a uh, Beatles biography. Uh, so the quick
2: answer to what has he done, whatever he wants.
1: Uh, pretty <laughs> much. He was producer for the Frost Nixon movie, the Da Vinci Code movies, A Beautiful Mind.
0: Narrator for Arrested Development.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, I, he, I loved A Beautiful Mind.
1: Yeah. Uh, producer for How the Grinch Stole Christmas. No kidding. Yep. He, he directed A Beautiful Mind, directed uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And of course, you know his big one that I will always think of is Apollo 13.
2: Mm, I actually never saw that movie. I knew it was great.
1: But Joy would strangle it. you through your <laughs> headphones. Well, if I she guess knew I guess, that,
2: I guess I better you, see that. You, you better do it quick so
1: it comes out. before this episode comes out, or you will feel her wrath on the East Coast. You will feel a tremor through the force, and Kaja will look up an alarm and go, "What was that?" And you'll wide-eyed at your table. You'll go, "She knows." <laughs>
2: I'll also say, uh say, I saw Kylo Ren with his shirt off. Uh, wait, no, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, you need to see Apollo 13. Anyway, so a Han Solo story, now that has got Ron Howard behind it, and uh, everything I've heard from the remaining cast and crew is that the man has just been wonderful and gracious about moving into this role. So now I'm, I'm more looking forward to it. But those are the minor things. Another thing that I'm wanting to do this year, also mirrors something that you're going to be doing, Mike, is that it has been... At least five years since the last time I had anything to do with an RPG, uh, whether I played in one or GM'd one. And since then, I've accumulated more books. I finally got around to replacing most of my stolen Star Wars D6 books.
2: That was a loss. I even repaired some of those books for you.
1: You did. You repaired my core rulebook. You did a great job of that. I used to do that for a job. Uh, I've replaced quite a number of them. And uh, I've gotten even a couple of Middle-Earth books, thankfully, before the price hike. (laughs) And, of course, I got the 7th Sea books, the second edition ones, which are just wonderful. I'm still slowly making my way through. And some others as well. I want to really – ever since we talked about it on the show. I'm going to take a wild
0: stab in the dark and say, Tales from the Loop.
1: Add that to the list. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've been wanting to try the Fate Core system. Oh, yeah. Yeah and the rule book is on Amazon for only 1865 which is a perfect price for that game.
2: You know, I bought it at the local store for uh, for cover price and when I sent the receipt to the company who produces Fate they sent me the PDF. So, it's kind of like a 2-in-1 if you pay full price.
1: Oh, nice. Very
2: yeah. cool. Yeah.
1: So, I would love to give one of these systems or or one of my old ones. I would love to get back into a game i mean i'll uh, I like the idea, Mike the times that I've GM'd in the past, it's usually been pretty free form and I've got an idea of a plot line, kind of an end goal, but I want to see what direction the characters take it. The problem with that is that you don't really have an end game in sight
2: yeah it's it's difficult to see what they want and weave it through an arc And uh, my best campaign was like a three year campaign with uh the Star Wars D six. And it was a three-arc narrative, and it was really taking the impetus from who are the characters and weaving in their backstory and then bringing it full circle. And it was probably the best experience I ever had, but it's just one of those times that you can't uh, can't bottle that lightning.
1: No, you're right. You can't rush these things, which is why I like the idea of creating a set storyline – or as best as you can, because you, sometimes you never know what the character's going to do. But give the story a beginning, a middle, and an end. Or at least find some people, say, hey, can you do five sessions? We'll get through five sessions, see where things go from there, and write a gaming narrative that will fit within that time frame.
2: Yeah, I feel pretty safe saying this. I don't think that either my kids or the other people that I'm, that I'm working with are going to listen to this. But the concept that I'm going to go for the first five sessions is... Uh, start it right after the battle of the Rebel Alliance, where they stole the plans from the Death Star, and just say that they were on board one of the, the troop transports to give relief troops, that uh, they got shot down by a TIE fighter on the way in, and crash-landed several clicks out from the original landing zone. Okay. So they get to watch the whole base get vaped.
1: <laughs> and it's like, now what do we do?
2: Right. And so they got to find a way off-planet. I'm sure there's more. I mean, they didn't build a shield around that planet just for one base. I mean, <laughs> they're going to utilize that resource. There's more there. And mm-hmm. watch them find their way back to Yavin 4, only to find it evacuated. So now how do we find the <laughs> Rebel Alliance? I like that.
1: So, and you know, I, may, I may borrow from that, Mike, because I'm really liking that.
2: I- just think it would be fun to see how do they how do they try to
1: backtrack. Like, well, how did
2: you get into the Rebellion? Well, I don't know. Well, make it up as part of your backstory. All right, then we'll go to that planet. And then once they connect, then you can say, mission accomplished. Or, what's your next mission?
1: So one more thing, uh, this kind of goes beyond the three, but and this also goes along with the whole uh, SCA craft thing, is that mostly I've done woodworking, but I'm also going to be looking into expanding and adding some very light metalworking. I have a good friend of mine who has been a blacksmith longer than some of my friends have been alive. He's been uh, helping me kind of look around online, either through Craigslist or through eBay, about finding a small either section of railroad track or a small steel anvil. Mm. And I'm not talking about forging out a knife. I'm not going to be going all forged in fire all of a sudden and doing Damascus steel, but uh, I would like to have a small setup that, you know, I've got a propane torch, and uh, I've got some hammers, and I would like to be able to start doing my own brass work. I first got the idea because I'm pretty well known for making medieval waxed writing tablets. Oh, yes, I've seen those. I've entered some into competitions. I've given out many, many more as gifts to people, and they're just something that people seem to really like. I don't know. In this day and age, they're not really practical. Back then, they were very practical, which is why we have so many examples of them in museums. Um, But today, uh, it's it's more of just a fun thing to have. You know, some people might use them, some people might not, but everyone seems to like them. Tablet technology has changed. It has quite a bit. (laughs) At first, I made wooden writing styluses. I've just, you know, carved them out with a knife or with a, a sander. And then in my friend's metal shop back in Colorado, he let me use his metal shop, and I was able to hammer out a set of nice brass ones. I've gone through all of those. I'd like to make more. But instead of trying to find someone's metal shop, I'm like, you know what? Why not just get a decent striking surface and do it myself? So that's what I've been looking for. I think I've got a nice hardened steel anvil found. I consulted the blacksmith, and he said he's thinking about getting one for himself for doing small work. Because this blacksmith, who oh, my nose name's Godwin, he's got like 10, 12 anvils. He's got a lot of anvils.
2: I mean, that is an Animaniacs episode waiting to go bad right now.
1: No, no, it's an Animaniacs episode that already went bad.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, this is the post credit scene. But I remember one time I was visiting his house, and the first time I saw them, a lot of them were in his back. It was like a pumpkin patch of anvils. <laughs> they were just kind of among the grass. and Do You plant to grow an anvil like that. Exactly. You have to, you have to care for your anvil patch. You know, you have to be careful where you put it, how much sun it's getting, what kind of fertilizer you use. You know, if you really want the best, anvils with the nicest ring to them. But you see an anvil, you think, oh, it's heavy. But you don't think how heavy. And to prove his point to me one time, he said, hey, that anvil there, could you pick it up? well, I want to replace the one on the stump with that one there. Can you pick the one off the stump and put it down? I said, sure. I think young man in my early mid-20s, no problem. Wrap my arms around it. Remember to lift with my legs squeeze it tight to my body and I lift it up and I get it about maybe three inches off of the stump until I had to put it right back down. And he was laughing at you like really hard. Actually, he didn't say a thing. Huh. He just bent down. He gently wrapped his arms around it like he was picking up his cat and then just stood up. And then he said, I think I'm going to put it over here. No, I think I'm going to put it over here. And he walked over there somewhere else. Maybe I'd like it back over here. Walks it over to the other part of the yard. No, maybe here oh, no, I'll just put it right back on the stump and then gently let it unfold from his arms back onto the stump. And that was your first lesson in who you are. (laughs) It really was. (laughs) It really was. But the anvil I'm looking at now is a decent sized one. It's 20 pounds. And for doing, if I wanted to make my own rivets, if I wanted to make my own brass riding styluses, or if I wanted to make my own nails for woodworking projects, it's perfect for that. So you'll do your own nails? I will, and they'll look beautiful. Amazing. We'll never have to go to the salon for medieval nails again. (laughs) Interesting story. When I was doing a much, much earlier woodworking project, I tried to go online to see if I could find a vendor who sold period-looking style nails. Oh, my gosh. Finally found found a website that did, and the website gave my computer a virus. (sighs) I hate those. Yeah, I'm familiar. So... I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own. So that is my geek list for 2018.
0: Uh, well, we talked a little bit the last two episodes about board gaming, how to introduce people to board gaming, what kind of board games are good to get people involved. And so we're talking to people that have not done a lot of board gaming and may not have any idea what happens to a board game when you have children involved. I know Back when I was growing up, I don't think we had a board game that had all of the pieces, that had a box that was intact. And, Mike, I've seen your collection, and it is in very nice condition. Do you have any tips and strategies on keeping your games in good condition when you have children and many guests who may not be very respectful of the cardboard?
2: Step one, all ye abandon hope here, I think. No, um... The issue with kids and games is you want to teach them, like anything else, like how to respect the things that you have. Um, this is why we can't have nice things is going to be a phrase that you use. So um, <laughs> I think that there are some games that are good to purchase, such as Candyland, because they're crap and it doesn't matter if they get destroyed. When you're able to teach them how to have some sort of respect with their games – then they can move up to certain other games.
1: And make sure that there are stepping stones, like we talked about before. You don't want to go from shoots and ladders to dominion. Right.
2: <laughs> um, and, I mean, and even then, it's a matter of your kids are going to do things that you don't ever think that you're going to have to tell another human being. It, every parent has that story that says fill-in-the-blank is something that no one should ever have to say. I don't know who was at fault this time at this particular juncture because I was babysitting five kids from the ages to one to five but lift the lid on the potty before you start peeing is a thing that we had to review and then I had a floor to clean up (laughs) so it's basic common sense that you wind up having to go through again and again and with your games it's a similar thing take the dominion piece out of your mouth we don't hold the cards like this don't don't do something that's going to fold them or bend them But that's a process that you get to. And the first step is if you have an archivist heart, and I do, I mean, my books I try to keep in really good condition. My games I try to keep in really good condition. But it's a matter of introducing them to the table when they're ready. And also start them off on games that it's not going to matter how hard they handle them. Uh, Animal Upon Animal is a great game that's made of just one very big die and all meeples. When they're able to handle that game gently, and it's wonderful because that company also sells replacement pieces, which is a delightful thing, (laughs) then it's something that you can experiment with and you can train them with. And it's actually kind of a fun game because you've already, as adults, just played with your meeples anyway. Now there are rules. As they get a little bit older and you can move them into carcassone, these are stiffer pieces that you can still talk to them about how to treat them respectfully. And also, just expect the fact that these things are meant to be played with, they are going to show wear and tear, and you have many opportunities to freak out as a parent. You will take more of those opportunities than you should. Try not to make <laughs> fun time the time that you freak out, because these are games. You're supposed to have fun, you're supposed to be building times, not relationship-damaging times, and you can make it whatever you want. Ultimately, the, the game is not more important than the family, And if you think that your game is more important than the family, then you probably shouldn't be playing it anyway. Keep it in a glass case somewhere. If you have that legendary prototype uh, of Boba Fett with the rocket-firing backpack, put it in a glass case. Don't play it. Yeah, and then move the kids through as you will. It's harder when you have adults, because sometimes people aren't as conscious of having the archivist heart that that you invariably do. And some part of it, if you're like me, it's something that you just kind of have to get over. Um, the games aren't going to be pristine forever because you played them. That being said, there are moments to educate and to talk through. How to use coasters might be a good thing on summer days. There was an individual that was talking to me about his first foray into the world of gaming. And he said that he thinks that he committed a faux pas and he wasn't quite sure what to do and like he wasn't aware of it ahead of time. And he said, okay, well, I know that it's traditional to bring snacks, and this person is play testing this board game and card game that they've printed off. So it's kind of an alpha testing or beta testing. So, you know, I really want to show my appreciation for being invited to this card game. So I'm going to bring
1: baklava. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and were they like, oh, I'll have some of that after I finish this big bag of Cheetos? <laughs>
2: well. It's funny because as soon as he said that, I just went, oh, the cards. And he's like, right, I did not think of that. In the like,
1: same way that someone would go, the
2: horror. <laughs> <laughs> the went, cards. The question was like, okay, so how did they handle it? Like, what did they do? Because also at the same time, if you're a good host, you're going to be gracious, and you're going to be kind, and you're going to be good. And they said, I have an idea. Why don't we go ahead and have the baklava first? We'll go ahead and clean up and then we'll play the game. And so, you know, everybody was accepted, but he could also tell that, oh, maybe this this wasn't the idea. (laughs) Fair enough. So, you know, it's harder if it's probably something like, I don't know, your fiancé and she just bent one of the Dixit cards. And then you're like, wow, can I get the ring back? (laughs) (laughs) No, that never happened. That never happened. I made that up.
1: What we don't see is Kaja giving him the dirtiest of looks right now. Like, you swore you'd never tell anyone. <laughs> uh, we, we did not play Dixit
2: when we were engaged. I think that was missed, bringing a full circle. Well, I have cool. to, I have
0: a confession. There were a couple of times playing Magic with James when I would cringe because James, as he has said many times, is an SCA heavy fighter. Large, very strong hands. And when he holds the, the, the cards, sometimes they bend. Oh. I'm just like, oh, my cards.
2: Oh. <laughs> no, I've done the same thing. Like I have done the exact same thing of watching watching the way somebody is is handling a card and I have to say, okay, is this that big of a deal? And <laughs> it <okay>. really isn't. <laughs> oh. Now, it, now if somebody is is spilling coke on Munchkin, it's like, okay, so do I just replace them?
1: <laughs> wait, wait, the card, the cards are <laughs> the friends.
2: Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if somebody spilled Coke
1: on
0: Munchkin, I say Bravo. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I'm <laughs> tired of that game.
1: <laughs> hey, if uh, somebody uh,
2: spills Coke on Arkham Horror, <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, also, Munchkin will cost you 20 bucks at the store to replace. Arkham Horror, a little bit more. Right.
2: Well, <laughs> I mean, and that's one of the things you probably pay attention to in setup. And there's been a couple of times that I've said, and this is among people who are gamers, like – uh, for this one, can we have the drinks off the table? And there's enough end tables and TV trays that we can you know, deploy them elsewhere. And everybody's like, yeah, there's going to be a lot of reaching. There's going to be a lot of this. Let's.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, here's a question that goes along with that about bending cards or losing pieces. And, Mike, you might know more about this. How good are companies these days about replacing lost game pieces regardless of the game?
2: Well, you can't say regardless of the game, uh, because uh, it really depends on the
1: company. Um, Obviously, if something happens to your Magic the Gathering card, they're not going to replace it. Right. I'm like talking about if something happens to some of your pieces in either Dominion or Puerto Rico or Arkham Horror. How good are they if they have any type of replacement plan?
2: Uh, Let me tell you this. Uh, The first experience that I had with this was with Looney Labs, and uh, they are delightful both as customer service. I also had a chance to meet them. Just delightful individuals. We would played chrononauts over at somebody's house. Uh, One of the cards wound up slipping off the table. We didn't realize it. Their dog got to it. And it was a, my dog ate my homework. And I emailed them and they said, oh yeah, totally. Send me a self-addressed stamped envelope, whatever protection you want to send with the card and we will mail one back to you. Replace it, no questions.
1: Okay, that's cool.
2: I just recently, and this this bugs me, this really bugs me, um, because I'm the type of guy, I have over 400 dice, um, and uh, do you know what's really Dude. sad? I lost one.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, my heavens.
2: And I noticed. <laughs> so... <laughs> If, like it's smog. Anything, I was able to get that replaced. <laughs> you know, I had to buy one from... Was it,
1: was it a golden one?
2: No. Golden D20? <laughs> no, nothing nearly. So I mean, it was one of my 12 D6s that I had to this particular run. And that's, you know, I was able to replace that D6. So I had a similar experience in terms of losing a piece with Small World. And I've lost one of my trolls. And I went to contact the company and they used to be... Are really good about being able to exchange it or to be able to give you a new piece or sell you a new piece, but they got bought out by a larger company and they just don't have the time, they don't have the focus to be able to replace one piece. And so you're left with the choice of either buy the game again to replace your one troll, put in a token, or I have found that there are some people who will buy these games and then will break it up and sell it piecemeal on eBay. So they wind up making their money back and then some, Mm -hmm. and you wind up getting some spares for your piece, except everyone is out of Trolls.
1: Well, my question (laughs) for that is, because I was wondering if there was a company, some enterprising individuals out there who were selling individual pieces, but what kind of markup do they put on those?
2: It will depend on where you're doing your shopping. I found similar pieces to the Trolls for like 50 cents for one troll piece or, you know, in this case, you know, the humans, the elves, um, there are no trolls yet available. So it depends on the piece and it depends on the seller. There are some people that are, that'll sell you a set of trolls or a set of humans for two fifty or 5 bucks. So it really depends on who's buying the game and breaking it up and selling it piecemeal.
1: Fair enough. But at least it sounds like in that unforeseen moment where you do lose a piece, there's some options for you.
2: Yeah. Um, I think the most attractive option for me is going to another person's game night and just stealing the piece. Um, uh, When's your next Small World Night, James?
1: And that's how you get uninvited.
2: (laughs) Right. Any other follow-ups on that discussion point?
1: None that I can think of. I was trying to think of myself of what steps have we taken, but that would infer that we've actually played a board game more than once or twice in the past few (laughs) months.
2: You don't do a whole lot of that when you have babies.
1: No, you don't. Michaela has really enjoyed playing shoots and Ladders and Candyland. And don't ask me how, but she is a champion at Candyland. The luck that girl has is just absurd.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, that game isn't a game. It's, for my philosophy classes, I used it as a metaphor for hard determinism. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nice. But I am really looking forward to the day that as long as mommy and daddy continue to play these with her, as long as she still gets excited about them. And part of her being excited about them is our willingness to play them with her.
2: That's a hard thing, really.
1: Uh, Yeah. Um, And if we can keep doing that, then maybe we can graduate her to progressively more interesting games.
2: Yeah. And I will say this, the problem is that you're always parenting, never just playing.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I will admit, you talk about keeping games away from little ones. I found out when I was younger, I always found it highly annoying. I became very impatient whenever we'd be playing board game with people and they're like, Oh, can our seven year old play too? And I'd be like, ugh. Can't we just <laughs> the play the first, game?
0: The very first out of my copy of Smash Up was my nephew's, we wanna play this game. I'm like, this game has never been played before, and you want me to share it with a pair of seven year olds? Oh dear.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's why I have a couple of alternatives of, oh, well, this game is really for, let's take a look at the box. Oh, for 13 and up. I mean, uh, <laughs> why don't we go towards this game? And I do have a couple of games that are geared for younger kids.
1: So smart. So it provides options. And if you want to get an idea about some of the games that Mike likes and endorses, check out the new photo on the Facebook page of Geek at Arms, because that is Mike's <laughs> own game cabinet. Which I bet only represents a portion of what you really have.
2: Uh there are a couple more shelves there that are not in the view, and that does not include the B list that we have in the cabinets or the Oh gosh, somebody gave us a copy of Monopoly. Let's put that in a tub in the basement.
1: That's <laughs> the the shelf is a little wonky, it's a little off, so let's just slide that underneath it and make it more even.
2: <laughs> there's yeah, there's there's always room for some Monopoly cardboard underneath one of those
1: shelves. Was it Plain vanilla Monopoly, or was it one of its many unique geekified flavors?
2: See, I actually found the Lord of the Rings Monopoly playable because it had a terminus. I say had because we actually had a babysitter observe the children. I wouldn't say that they actually babysat, but there was some observation
1: of the children. <laughs> she was able to prove semi-conclusively that they were in the house.
2: I took pictures of what happened to our game collection when we had arrived home. It took us two hours to clean up the strewn, chewed, danced-upon games. No. Yeah, we took pictures, and fortunately, the children did not, get to, uh, did not get to any of the expensive games. We hadn't developed quite the expensive repertoire at that point. But there were some things that were a little bit more damaged than we would have liked. And there was just some surprise that, oh, these young children of four and five or three and four, oh, these weren't their games then. Like, no. No, the children did not play Lord of the Rings Monopoly. When the kids are really young, like three or four, if you have games that you really, really care for, baby-proof and educate babysitters because... Babysitters don't always understand what are their games and what are your games or the value of your games because there was an incident that uh, we had, fortunately nothing was permanently damaged, but there was some misunderstanding and we spent two hours cleaning up game pieces after the kids got to them.
1: I think that you handled that situation much more patiently than I would. And Brian can attest to this. I am a person who likes to keep the things that I own in excellent shape whether it's SCA, whether it's electronics, whatever it is, I like to keep it in the best possible condition as I can, and that especially goes for my games, whether it's card games. And, Brian, I am more careful about holding Magic cards. Thank you very much. Oh, no,
0: I know. I, I have noticed that over time.
1: And, uh, <laughs> and what, what can I say? I didn't know my own strength back then. <laughs> but I like to keep the boxes in excellent condition, and I'm not crazy OCD about it. I just I like things to look nice. But... There's a lot that the boys Emma and Michaela get into. In fact, I probably have to clean up a pile of Legos or wooden blocks at least twice a night. Because they've got a tub of Legos. They've got a tub of wooden blocks and a tub of, like, plastic food, pots and pans and kitchen stuff. Every night, I will clean up each of those at least once. Because they dump it, and then they get into it. And it's still a little too early to teach them, clean up one mess before you make another.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so, that's a lesson that um, some of us are still learning.
1: Fair enough. No judgment here. No judgment. Only acceptance. I'll um, tell you
2: though, seriously, like on a serious note, it is weird because I am like hyper organized and hyper careful about certain things. My books, especially my role playing books, mm-hmm. uh, my fencing books, my games. There are certain things that I just have this hyper organization, and it seems like all of my organization gets focused into those areas where everything else just kind of goes to crap around it. Like, if you take a look at my desk, which I'm sure, James, you've seen my desk at one point or another. Yes. And
1: it's... I'm assuming that there was a desk under it.
2: Yeah, there's a desk there.
1: Okay. I thought it was just cinder blocks and two-by-fours holding up the stuff. I wasn't sure. <laughs> it's not far from it. <laughs> but where I was going was that all the games that we do have right now are kept high up on shelves in the linen closet. Does it lock? the boys can't reach the latch.
2: Get a hook and eye before they can.
1: And even if they (laughs) could, they would have to climb past several layers of towels and bed sheets and stuff to get to the games.
2: I'm not kidding. Get at some (laughs) point, get that hook and eye, and get one of those spring-loaded ones where where the hook has to have finger tension on it.
1: Would it be easier for me just to get a retinal scanner and dead bar lock? A gun safe would do just as well. There you go. But it's a good place. It keeps them way up high and out of the way of all the children. But the problem is that because it is in a linen closet, it's a limited amount of space. So every time we do get a new game, I have to go back and I have to study my current layout and design of organization and figure out how I'm going to fit another at least 12-inch by 12-inch box into it. i to
0: redraw the schematics.
1: Yeah, back to the drawing board. I better break out the AutoCAD. And how much do you love it? That is actually a good point, because if it's a very well-loved game, it's on the bottom tier, sometimes plays a middle tier, and if it's a, we'll get to this eventually, or it's so-so top tier that just gets stacked one on top of the other as up up to the ceiling. And sometimes games move from one level to the next. Same happens here. Well, on that note, I think we should probably start wrapping this episode up, and I guess that will take us once again... The zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, it's a brand new year. What have you got for us to help us avoid the zombie hordes of 2018?
2: Oh, yeah, this one's easy. I'm actually running through a simulation of this one right now. Um, it's called uh, New England Winter. <laughs> <laughs> Frozen meat can't move, guys. Yes, but you do have to be careful in the spring because it does keep them fresh. You know, it doesn't really matter because once you go ahead and just go ahead and move them out into the street, the plows really take care of all of that, as (laughs) well as maybe any bicycle parts that you have dangling over, (laughs) uh, your rearview mirror, all kinds of things that are in the way just get scraped clean. And also, have you seen the sort of things that we have to scrape the ice off of our sidewalks and stairs? Everybody's got these, like, imagine taking a hoe and then straightening it. We've got these steel blades that are on the end of these axe handles. Is that what those things are for? Yeah.
1: Brian thought they were for fighting off
2: polar bear. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter to the ice scraper now, does it?
1: (laughs) That's true.
2: So, you know, a good whack with one of those in the head. I mean, the the zombies are really losing this battle. There's not even going to be an apocalypse. It's going to be three to five inches of snow. It's going to be, or actually more like, it's going to be eight to 12 inches of snow, <laughs> eight to 1,200 dead zombies, and then everybody's back to work on Monday.
1: I think that's been the most solid plan yet. I mean, all you it, need is a good
2: infrastructure. I, I mean, you guys in Texas...
1: It does mean that Texas, New Mexico and Florida are going to have to be more proactive in their anti-zombie efforts.
2: Yeah. I mean, move to New England. Bring a coat. (laughs) You'll need it.
1: (laughs) And I think that is going to wrap it up for us at Geek at Arms. I want to thank you all for listening. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, iTunes, and the Google Store. And so from all of us here, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com.
0: For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.